This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes, as well as some of the challenges they've faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking to Raoul Salter, a partner at Grosswoodell ICL. Grosswoodell is a commercial real estate company who specialise in commercial property sales, leasing and management. In today's episode, Raoul will take us through the journey of leasing commercial premises. He'll explain the lease terminology that's thrown around in today's market, and you'll hear the key things to look out for when leasing a commercial property. Let's jump in. Hello, Raoul. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm really excited about this. Before we get into it all, for those that don't know you, Raoul Salter, can you give us a bit about your background and so on? Sure. Well, professionally, I am a commercial real estate agent, have been doing it for uh, longer than I care to mention, um, <laughs> several decades. I started out working for a mid-sized commercial agency in the CBD, and we were then swallowed up by a larger agency and taken over yet again. So I kind of moved with the furniture. I then got poached by a little company called Linfox that some people might know. Went across there as their commercial manager for a while and then spent a year working as a consultant on my own but ended up doing a project for that 12 months and then I joined Grosswoodell ICR or as it is today but it was Grosswoodell back then and been there ever since and a partner of the firm. Uh, Outside of that I run a theatre company so that's a bit of fun that helps with auctioneering skills primarily. It really is exciting. I know you've helped a lot of our clients over the journey with commercial leases and, and, and so on. So I am really excited to have you on the show. But before we dive deep into commercial leases, can you sort of give us a bit of a rundown between commercial leasing and sort of residential at a high level? Sure. Well, look, I think the Residential Tenancies Act is changing. Commercial leases, primarily the difference between commercial and residential is fundamentally generally the lease term itself. Residential leases generally run six months to 12 months, not much beyond. Commercial leases are inherently longer than that. They can be typically three years, five years and vary outside of that as well. The differences fundamentally are that commercial tenants will pay outgoings, and I'll get onto that in more detail in a moment, but residential tenants don't, other than their electricity, phone, etc. Commercial tenants, if they are non-retail tenants, will pay council rates, water rates, insurance and land tax. If they're a retail tenant, then they're not responsible for land tax. Owners are responsible for that. Okay. So in terms of retail tenant versus commercial, what what do you mean by retail? You don't mean retail as in shops? Yep. The definition of retail really is where you are providing goods or services. Therefore, people will come to you for that retail or service. So even if you are simply a distribution centre for an online retail company, technically speaking, you may fall under the control of the Retail Leases Act. Before we go through some other things that I wanted to touch on, I wanted to just knock off some terms and and some definitions and hopefully that will give some understanding of what they mean. So you talked about terms being longer, but in our world we hear things like three by three, five by five by five and, and so on. 
What does that mean? What does the buy mean and these numbers that get thrown around? Yeah, that can be daunting and a bit confusing. So leases typically will have a term certain, which will be one, two, three, eight years, ten years, and there'll be what's called an option which can be added to that, which will usually in many respects is often reflective of the initial term. So if it's a three-year lease, it'll be plus a three-year option or sometimes they have times three, which can be confusing because people might think it's three times three, which is nine. But technically what it means is three plus three. So it's three years of initial lease term, three years as an option period. And that option as a tenant is vitally important because you control the power. An option, even though perceptively when you go to buy a property or an investor, mum and dad investor goes to buy a property, if they see a property that's for sale with a three-year lease, they see another one with a three plus three, they'll think, oh, the three plus three is better because, you know, the tenant's tied up for six years. That's not the fact. The fact is the tenant's only liable to stay there for three years, but they, at their own discretion, can exercise an option to stay for a further three years. That's fundamentally the difference. So you have three-year lease, three-year option, or it could be a five-year lease, five-year option, and there could be multiple options. The hospitality industry invariably looks for multiple options. And the reason is that they're building a business that they want to sell. So therefore, the longer they have as a commitment, the better it is for them down the track to be able to sell their business. Often, rather than, say, a 10-year lease with a 10-year option, they'd rather have a three-year lease with a series of three-year options because it gives them an out and it means that their commitment is limited to the initial lease term or the term that they're in at that time. Fantastic. And with the option being where the tenant has the right to extend the option, if at that point the landlord says, look, oh, they're a good payer and all the rest of it, but I want that premises for myself or whatever it is, can they actually say, look, thank you for wanting the option, but actually I decided that I don't want to give it to you or is that contracted in? Okay. So if you sign an initial lease and offer your tenant as a landlord that option, the landlord has no opportunity to withdraw from that once the tenant has signed that contract. So the only way that that can be addressed is at the initial stage when they sign up the lease, they may put in what's called a demolition or a relocation provision or a vacation provision so that the tenant would be under the knowledge that if they exercise their option, for example, it might be a 12-month notice to vacate. And in that case, the landlord at the commencement of that period or any time during that option period, be it three or five years or eight years, whatever it might be, can issue the tenant with a 12-month notice of intention for them to vacate the premises. But that has to be set up the day the leases are signed or prepared. Can't be done midway through the term or option periods, that's not possible. And those clauses like relocation or demolition, is that designed so that the owner may decide to demolish the block and build apartments or whatnot and it gives that opportunity for the owner of the premises to do that? What happens if they use that clause but don't actually proceed? Do they have to proceed and are there maybe going to a good question, a really good question. And look, certainly under the Residential Tenancies Act is far more rigid on this by definition. In other words, you have to have the reason that you give a tenant for giving them notice as if you're going to you know, move in to live in it yourself or you are selling the property, et cetera, et cetera. That has to be a, certainly abided by. As far as commercial is concerned, it really comes down to how the lease is drafted and how that clause is drafted. So if the tenant goes in with the knowledge that the landlord for any reason can give them notice after a certain date, then that's exactly what it is, any reason. If it is specific to the landlord or lessor's intent to demolish or refurbish or do major repairs, it will say a 12-month notice 
for a major repair or demolition provision. At that point, the notice would be issued to the tenant for that reason and that reason alone. In terms of compensation or otherwise, if the landlord then doesn't proceed with that, that would be a question for the solicitors. Just a little bit on terms, so not terms or definitions. Guarantees, I'm assuming there's some, like in residential, there's some guarantees provided. So can we talk about that and what's generally asked of to tenants? Sure. Okay, so there's two distinct areas. There's things called bank guarantees and then there are personal or director's guarantees. With bank guarantees, which can otherwise be a bank guarantee or a security deposit, and the differences there are that with a bank guarantee, you've got to go to your bank, you've got to have the funds available, and in fact, it's something you can tell your clients about (laughs) more than I can. You've got to have the funds available, and the bank will provide literally a one-page guarantee that is in favour of the landlord. It's effectively cash. They can cash it in any stage where there is a breach of lease. The security deposit, on the other hand, is where you will lodge an amount with the lessor or lessor's agent who will either put it in a trust account or put it into something like a Macquarie interest-bearing trust account. By today's standards, that's by definition only because the interest is worth two-fifths of (laughs) five-eighths. And then, of course, you've got director's guarantees. What you've got to be very careful of as a tenant is understanding that you can either be asked to put in, say, a bank guarantee And then you might be asked to include directors or personal guarantees. And at that point, you are liable for the performance of that lease, for the duration of that lease, irrespective. Where you only have to put up a bank guarantee or security deposit, your liability is limited to the value of that guarantee that you're putting up. Does it stop landlords from taking further action? Well, obviously not, but the point is you're not personally liable. In terms of guarantees, are there sort of amounts that's standard, so equal to three months' worth of rent, six months' worth of rent, and, and who determines that, or is that something that's negotiated? Good question. Often comes down and ties in with the financial viability of those applying. So if a tenant comes along and says, Savan, I'd like to rent your shop, You'll look at them and say, okay, that's fine. Now, what we're going to need are certain things. We're going to need financials, which will be basically your assets and liabilities. You can go to your accountant for that. Assets and liabilities. Then you would need references, history, experience, details. And under the Retail Leases Act, you are supposed to put together a business plan which identifies how you are proposing to run this business. Based on all of that, look, the standard, and when I say standard, it varies widely, but your starting point would be three months net rent plus GST. Sometimes it goes to gross rent. The difference between net and gross is the difference between including the outgoing costs or not, and then it builds from there. So it could be three months, six months, nine months, or 12 months. And often if a landlord, for example, is doing capital works as part of the lease agreement, they may well get you as a tenant, and again, I'm talking from the tenant's perspective, they may well get the tenant to put up additional for, say, a period that helps to offset that cost of what they're putting into the premises. In other words, if they're contributing $100,000 of costs of capital works, then they may want the tenant to put in a higher bank guarantee uh, or security deposit. And over the time, that will diminish relative to the period of time they've been there in situ, because that way, at least the landlord's not putting it all up front and next day the tenant goes broke and they've spent all that money unnecessarily. Let's say you're sort of starting out new business, not a lot of experience, and for whatever reason, you've asked to put in 12 months security bond. As you sort of gain experience and you're a great tenant and it's two or three years in, could you actually, even throughout the lease request, would landlords come to the party to reduce that security bond and maybe give some of it back and, and have that sort of open discussion? Yeah. Or is that something like hard and fast rule, it's done and done? Well, again, never it's a bit like we touched on earlier with things like 
demolition provisions, etc. It's got to be negotiated up front. So what you would do is you would say, Mr. Landlord, here's my experience. Here's my financials. Look, we've been in business for many years. Appreciate the fact that you're wanting us to put up a six-month bank guarantee. In the first instance, we'd like to say, yes, we'll put that up. But look, if we performed without any breaches of lease for, say, 12 months or two years, would you then consider reducing that to four months? Similarly, if it's 12 months, the more you're putting up, perhaps the more there is room for negotiation. I think that's probably fair. But yes, that would have to be discussed up front. The only other time you could discuss it would be at the end of your lease or when you're exercising an option, the problem is the terms of the lease still stand as they are. But if you're keen enough, you could speak to your landlord and if you've got a good relationship by then and you've performed that well, it may well be the landlord says, you know what, I'm prepared to look at that. But one thing that's very, very important to understand is that the guarantee is not just a guarantee as a performance for rent and performance under the terms of the lease. It also helps to offset any issues when you go to leave the premises. Because in other words, if you have to reinstate the premises, if you've gone in and you've put in capital works yourself as a tenant, then you are responsible for removing those at the other end of the lease. So the landlord has to not only make sure the guarantee is guaranteeing the performance of you during the term of the lease, but also at the other end, when it comes time to you to vacate, that any of the costs associated with reinstating the premises, because if you simply pack up and leave, then he's left or she is left with the cost of actually reinstating the premises. So that was my next question, make good provisions. So you've you've kind of touched on that. So really just to recap on the make good provisions is that when you decide to leave the premises, are you required to leave it in the same way that you got in? So if you came in with four walls and blah, 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 you'd just go straight in and and remove it and you'd be liable to make sure that you pay for all the removals and all that kind of stuff. A lot, again, yes, as a general rule, that's correct. Look, if you take over, if I walk in, for example, in your office and I'm taking over this office and I look and the walls have got marks on them or the carpet's worn, if that's a condition that I've been handed the property in, then there is a thing called a redecoration provision that exists in a lot of leases where every five years or three years or whatever the term might be, and you need to look at this carefully as a tenant, for example, and we keep talking from the tenant's perspective at the moment, but as a tenant, you need to check that lease very carefully because often there will be a redecoration provision within the lease that through the term will require you at certain points to actually read paint walls, perhaps re-carpet, that's probably more extreme but can happen, but to ensure that the place is freshened up. If you walk in and the landlord has just presented you with as new premises, then it will be upon you at the end of the lease to ensure that that's the condition upon which you hand the premises over. So there's a thing called fair wear and tear and that's often the allowance within a lease that a tenant can make sure they leave the premises in as good a condition as they found it, save for fair wear and tear. Fantastic. And talking about fit outs and things like that, I know that clients of mine have been able to successfully negotiate things such as rent inducement or in reverse rent free periods. Can you touch on sort of rent inducement and rent free, that sort of incentive for a landlord to provide some sort of carrot to come into that property? Never more topical than right now because COVID, I suppose, turned the whole industry upside down as it did our world. But 
Particularly what we're noticing is there are certain sectors of the market that have been hit very hard, the commercial market being the office space market particularly. I mean, I know a lot of people are very focused on retail and how that's going to be affected by COVID, but interesting enough, that's bouncing back okay. But the commercial market is an area of the office market, when I refer to commercial, is still in a state of flux because people don't really know, they haven't adjusted yet to what they're going to do, particularly within the CBD itself. You know, high-rise buildings, people coming back to work, are they going to occupy as much space. So the point I was getting to is that face rents, and I'll explain that in a minute, face rents, which are rentals before incentives are taken out, face rents actually haven't gone down a great deal at the moment. What's happened is incentives have gone up. So whereas, for example, pre-COVID, an office lease might have attracted an incentive of, say, 15%, So that means 15% of the rental you're paying over the term of, say, the three years is offered as an inducement. Now, that might be by way of a rent-free, whether it's upfront or amortised across the lease term, or whether it's a capital contribution by the landlord, or whether it's by way of maybe reducing the rent a little. At the end of the day, there's a bucket, and that 15% will be represented by one of those things. What we're finding now is in areas we're getting up to 30 and even 40% in the CBD incentives because that's the way landlords are having to induce tenants and more particularly because we've got a sublease market now where a lot of current tenants have got space and it's excessive space now. They don't need it all, so they're offering it to the market and saying, look, how about you come along and take this under a sublease of ours? So in other words, we'll be your landlord while the landlord above us is the landlord for the whole of the premises, we'll be your landlord for a portion of the premises for the duration of the period that you take. And in that situation, those incentives are considerably higher. Yeah, and and you need approval if when you're doing a sublease. You do. you do if you're going to a sublease or assign the lease. And to assign the lease means that if you want to get out of your lease at any stage, you will approach the landlord and say, "Look, Mr. Landlord, we have found another tenant to take over." The conditions under which you can do that is they have to be of equal standing or better and they have to be operating under exactly the same terms. So you can't renegotiate terms to get another tenant to take over. The only exception to that would be if you had, say, a year or so left of your lease, you introduced a new tenant and they want to take it on for, say, five years, then a landlord may look at it and go, you know what, I'll let you off the hook we'll take these new tenants on for a longer period. So you've basically done half the landlord's work for them because the lease was coming up in 12 months anyway. But getting back to your sublease, yes, you need to go to the landlord in the same way as you had to fulfil certain criteria. That tenant will or subtenant will have to provide the same criteria to you, which in turn will be passed on to the landlord. A lot of our clients with M&A activity will sell their business, especially in hospitality, happens quite a bit, fish and chip shops and restaurants. They happen quite a lot in what I've seen. The landlord's have to be part of that arrangement, I would have thought, because they could sell it to the next person and the landlord said, hold on a second, we don't want that tenant. We Mm -hmm. really like you. So when a business owner is looking at selling their business and part of the business is the location, what conversations do they have with the landlord? When do they have them and how does that sort of work? It's a good question. It's, It's really chicken and egg because really on one hand they want to secure somebody that might take over the business first, but then they have to be sure the landlord's going to be on board with it. Or they have the conversation with the landlord and say, we're thinking of selling, then they go out and find someone. Usually it's the former, not the latter. So once they've found someone, the conversation is generally pretty specific. It's, Mr. Landlord, I've found someone that wants to take over our business. Again, the lease is fairly specific. The landlord 
cannot reasonably withhold the right to sublease or assign. Okay, that's very important to look for those words. They are there. The landlord cannot unreasonably withhold the right. Having said that, they are entitled to be in as equal a position as they were with you, with the next tenant, or a better position. They cannot be in a lesser position as a result of it. So you can't introduce somebody that perhaps doesn't provide the same levels of security, doesn't have the same track record, etc. So you're going to have to do a bit of a sell job on your landlord to prove that this particular assignee, in this case, they're taking over the business and taking over the lease, are up to the mark. So in that case, it may well be that this person person coming in doesn't quite have the same level of experience you do. So what you would probably do in that situation is it may be then that they will be required to put up a larger guarantee, right? So whereas you had a three-month bank guarantee, the landlord might say, we want six from this particular assignee or person buying the business because we don't think they've quite got the level of experience you do. Still got on definition. There's so much in a lease that just mm. keeps rolling around. So I wanted to touch on the word market review and CPI in leases. So can you talk a little bit about that? Of course. So market reviews generally come up at the beginning of each option period. So in other words, we talked earlier about options where you have a lease term, three years. We're using it as the example. It could be four, could be five, could be two. At the end of three years, you as a tenant have got a decision to make as to whether you want to renew your lease and you have a period of time within which to do it, a minimum and maximum period to do it. So it might be, say, no earlier than 12 months out, no later than three months out from the expiration of your lease. Once you've done that, and there's been some changes to the retail Leases Act of late, where now the landlord is responsible for providing you with the rental that you're going to be paying before you exercise your option, right? And then you have what's called a cooling off period before you actually are obliged to proceed. So they're kind of waiting at a bit towards purchases of, of property. But we'll put that to one side. The, the thing is, when you go to exercise your option, there will then most likely be what's called a market review. And what that means is during the term of the lease, you might have had mechanical increases. It might have been two and a half or 3% increases each year. So therefore, both the landlord and you knew exactly what you were going to be responsible for. Then of course, it comes to that time to exercise your option. Is your rent equal to market? Is it above market? Is it below market? It gives both parties the opportunity to review it to that level, at market level. And at that point, Each party will go and do their own homework and come back and the landlord will put to you the rental for the ensuing period of the first year of the the further term. And you then have the right as a tenant to agree to it or if you don't agree to it, to try and negotiate. And and most times uh, landlords and tenants will reach an agreement on, on where that rent should lie. In the event they don't, the rental will go to valuation. So in other words, a value will be appointed, an independent value will be appointed, whereby both parties will have the opportunity to submit their arguments for what the rent should be. The independent valuer goes away, does his homework, comes back, and what he gives you is then effectively mandated. That's the rent and no correspondence will be entered into. So you take a risk on both sides when it gets to that point. But we're getting away from the question really. So market reviews occur when you exercise an option. Sometimes there's a midterm market review. Uh, So it might be halfway through the lease there is a provision for a market review and we're seeing that a lot more now since COVID because the lease terms, particularly where rents have gone backwards in retail, landlords are now saying, well, okay, I'll I'll accept a much lower rent, but we'll only give them two years or we're happy to give you five years, but we want a market review after the commencement of the third year of the lease. That way it allows you to adjust. Now, maybe a gamble again, because if the rent's gone backwards, that's the risk that the landlord takes. In terms of things like CPI, we saw something that we haven't seen for 
many, many years last year where we had negative CPI. And I'm always very conscious when we talk about rent reviews that it is a review to CPI. It's not a CPI increase. That terminology is often used and misused. And last year we saw a perfect example of that where, in fact, the CPI was negative. So as a tenant, you're probably in this market keen to see a CPI review in your lease. As a landlord, they would they would give it a wide berth. They would sooner go for a 2%, 2.5%, 3.5%, whatever it might be, a fixed review or fixed increase over a CPI uh, review. Because the CPI is so low at the moment. Well, not only low, it can go backwards. That's right. Technically yeah. speaking, you, you could find that your rent's gone down Yeah, because it is a review. I want to dive into a, a hypothetical sort of scenario We've got all the terminology and the definitions of fun. We've got all of the sort of, you know, the business owner understands what they've got to do. They want to go and lease premises. And a lot of people know how to seek a house they want to buy or uh, rental, realestate.com, a very successful business is very publicized. How does a business owner go out and lease offices, lease a shop, lease a factory? Where do they go? What's the first step? Yeah, look, that's again a really interesting question because if you're starting out from new with zero experience, I think by today's standards, the simplest way is to jump onto one of the portals, commercial real estate or real commercial, and you do a search. It probably start with just simply a Google search. So if you're looking for offices in Richmond or Cremorne, you just type in offices for lease, Richmond, Cremorne, and that will then spring up. And then you can filter down by size, location, you know, price. So you'd start by doing that. The other option is to let your fingers do the walking and ring agents and start to ask them what they've got. The important thing I think that as a tenant, again, from that perspective, you need to be aware of is if you're an office tenant, for example, it's starting off with how many staff you're going to have. Because there are certain rules of thumb, for example. If you're running a standard office, you would have sort of between 1 to 12 and 1 to 15 is your ratio. So 15 square metres per person, which would allow for circulation space, occupation space, reception, kitchen, etc, etc. That's just a rule of thumb. If you're a a call centre, it's one to eight. If you're a a legal firm, it's one to 20 or more. If you're an accounting firm, it's one to 50. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) But it just means that you are starting off with a point to be able to work out how much space you might need. From there, it's a case of making sure that when you speak to agents and find out what they've got, you'd want to go and inspect a couple of properties first, because sometimes it's all about space utilisation. You get in there in a space that might be, say, 200 square metres compared to a space that's 180 square metres, you might find 180 works better because it's a regular configuration and you might find you can end up doing better by taking that than, say, the larger space. And every square metre is precious because it's costing you that rate per metre, which is not cheap, no matter yep. where you go. And is that how they price commercial leasing? Is it really just lettable space, square metre, What's the going rate in the area and that's sort of how they sort of, not negotiate, but that's how they market it. They'll say, this is how many square metres we have and the going rate's $300 and what or whatnot. Is that how they, sort of the terminologies yeah. they use? Yeah. yeah, look, it is. It's, it's all rates per square metre generally for, for, say, office space. So once upon a time for retail, it used to be dollars per week or oh, yeah. dollars per month. But you know, even that's now a rate a metre. There's certain strips where we know that, you know, you're going to pay $400, 450 a metre for retail. 
commercial ranges anywhere from sort of 250 a metre to 80 a metre for some, you know, sort of lesser quality space up to, I mean, Cremorne, they're getting five to $600 a metre, which is serious money. That's, mm. you know, CBD rates certainly in the in the high, you know, A-grade space equivalent. So it, it is vitally important that you, you get it right. The other thing to bear in mind is often, most often, rentals are discussed as rates per square metre. What that means is if it's $300 a metre, it means $300 per square metre per annum. So that's over 12 months. So therefore, if you've got 200 metres at $300, then it's $60,000 a year, you know you're going to be paying for that space plus your outgoings, plus GST. And in terms of the negotiation process, so we've done all the homework, we've got an awesome agent like yourself and we found somewhere that we like. Generally, how does the negotiation play out? Is it just mm. standard or is it something unique that's different to standard negotiations? How does um, it go? Look, I think, again, if, if you're inexperienced, there's a couple of ways to approach it. No, the, the standard approach would be simply that the landlord's agent would give you the basic terms. So you say, right, look, I'm interested in this particular property. It looks like the sort of space we want. Yes, the size looks right. Can you give us a proposal, please? So what they'll do is they'll say to you, yep, the rent's going to cost you $60,000 a year. The outgoings are going to cost you $7,000 a year. Uh, car parking's going to cost you an additional. This is your total cost for the year. And you'll go back and you'll say, that's great. Now, you know, what incentives are there? If I'm going to take a five-year lease or what, you know, if, if I take a three-year lease, it will help if I go to five years. Will I get more of an incentive, more help? And invariably that will happen. So then they'll say, well, okay, well, we'll either give you this or you come back to us with a proposal and you're going to scratch your head and go, well, I'm not very experienced with this, so what do I do? So at that point in time, there are a couple of options. One, you either need to talk to people you know, speak to your accountant who can give you some guidance in that regard, or indeed there are things called tenant advocates or tenant reps and some of the work, you know, for example, we do, where you will engage someone to act on your behalf to actually go in and, in fact, depending on where in the process you pick them up, it might be at the very beginning where you say, look, Raoul, I don't even know where to begin. I sit down with them and I would go through a, you know, set of questions to determine what it is they're looking for, where they want to be, what the geographical boundaries are, what amenities they require and how many staff they're going to have and are they, what's the growth potential for the business. So therefore you work out how long you really want to commit yourself. Then you look at the geographical position, you look at all the options, you do what's called a request for information where it's sent to market. Information comes back, you then go and inspect and then we or whoever it might be would negotiate on your behalf to get you the best terms. And that's really what you need to do. But if you're doing it on your own, the most important thing to do is do your homework. Right. So in other words, if you know, for example, you're going to look at a property at 1414 Turak Road in Camberwell and you know that there's three offices in there, then you would try and do what you can to find out the information on how the others went, right? Mm. Or if you know someone that's in a similar industry to you or even friends who have leased premises, have a chat with them, talk to them, find out what they did to negotiate a position. Next question. Getting right near the end, we're at the tail end, we've got our premises, we've negotiated, we've got a lease. Do we go to lawyers at that stage? Is this where you bring a lawyer in, make sure that all those terms and the definitions and all the little bells and whistles in the agreement are well looked at? Is that something you recommend? Yeah. I would always recommend that you get legal advice or at least have a solicitor look at the documentation. And often what I would do is probably even get them to look at it at the heads of agreement stage just because different agents will have different levels of heads of agreement. More often than not, they're non-binding. 
at that point because that way it's designed that it doesn't bind either party but they are terms that are agreed. If it is binding, all the more reason you'd want your solicitor to look at it before you actually sign it. There is under the Retail Leases Act a, a requirement for a landlord to provide a, uh, a standard lease and disclosure statement ahead of a tenant signing in any event and they've got a period of time in which to review that and then sign it if they wish. So you would use that time to have a solicitor vet what has been submitted to you and give you advice as to what you need to do to ensure you're adequately covered as a tenant in the same way as the landlord would be doing the same with their solicitors. Important to note that under the Retail Leases Act, a landlord has to prepare the lease for the tenant at the cost of the landlord. But the only thing the tenant's responsible for is their own legal costs for getting advice at the other end. In your sort of what you've seen, what are the costs that lawyers charge these days? There's a couple of solicitors around that are amazing. They're very frugal on cost, but generally speaking, you're talking somewhere in the order of anywhere between, say, $1,100 to $1,800, $1,900 for, a, that's from a landlord's perspective, to prepare a lease, have a lease prepared, etc. To go to a solicitor and have it vetted and provide advice, I would think if you allow up to $1,000, you should cover off most, but that's just, you know, it's not my area of expertise. And my last question, you've been around the traps and you've done this for a long time. What do you see the most common mistakes that business owners make when they venture into leasing a commercial premises? That's a really good question. I think there's probably a few. One is they don't take into account total cost of occupancy. So they see rent as rent and then they forget that there's all the other costs associated. That is one area. So in other words, you've always got to look at something as a total cost of occupancy. So when they say this is what the rent's going to be, immediately ask what are the outgoings going to be, what other costs are there. The other thing too is overcommitment. You might be a, a food orientated or hospitality orientated tenant and you think to yourself, well, I, I've got to get a longer term lease because it's important, I want something to sell and they might commit themselves for five, six, seven years. Again, and this comes down to sitting down with your accountant particularly, is determining what that cost is, what's your exposure over that period? What's it really going to cost you to operate because you are on the hook from day one to the very last day? So in that situation, you're probably better off having, as we talked about earlier, you know, maybe a three-year term with successive three-year options or a five-year term with successive five-year options. Bear in mind the landlords will, ideally if they're passive investors, will want a longer term initially with the options are fine, but they'll want an, a longer term. The other thing too is to be very, very careful that you don't go into a property that's got potential development uh, upside because while you might get in there on an initial three plus three or a five plus five, the landlord may turn around at some point down the track and say, we're not giving you another option, sir, because we're actually thinking of redeveloping this site. And therefore, everything you've built up in that location is lost. So be very wary if you're building a business that you know is going to be something you're going to be selling or it's not transportable, just to be sure that what you're going and committing yourself to is going to suit your business for the longer term. It's been such a pleasure to host this episode. I've learned so much from just listening to you talk. It's been an amazing episode. I want to thank you for your time. No, look, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I think what you're doing is great. And I think education's key, particularly when people are shelling out a lot of money to set themselves up. Awesome. Thank you. Best. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. 
and we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing, and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.